turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. I realize that we are spending a lot of time in just the second, first and second chapters, um, but there's significance to these that can't be overstated, honestly, and we'll be in it again uh, next week as well. We'll finish chapter 2 next week, but for today we want to look at chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. So be turning there, you can put your finger there. Uh, Jason mentioned it, Peter is the preacher in Acts chapter 2, here specifically. And this is really the first uh, sermon preached post-resurrection, or post-ascension of Jesus. He Jesus taught a lot after his resurrection. Um, but after he ascended, this is uh, the audience that is found in Jerusalem. It's, it's Jews. They're there for Pentecost, which is a, a celebration. And... Peter, as we looked last week, is talking to these Jews, and he's he's intentionally going down the street, stomping on their toes. Okay, now not literally, you understand. But what he's saying is, last week we talked about this, he's pointing the finger and he's saying, it was you. The guy who was crucified on the cross, you did it. Now, he rose again. God raised him from the dead, Peter says. But it was you, and we looked at how that was us as well. And he he just passes right over their Jewish heritage. He passes right over any social standing, any dis- distinctions uh, in any way. And he says, you are the ones who are the lawless men who put him to death. But then he, he also quotes from Joel in this sermon, and he says, at the same time, it's this neat juxtaposition of, you were the ones, and yet anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a way. And that's what we really get into now in our in uh, Peter's sermon today. We see the response of the audience but we know that there were some here, as we'll see, um, as we saw in the first chapter, uh, or earlier in chapter 2, we, there's a variety of people in the audience, just like there is today. There was a variety of people in the audience. I, I don't mean nationalities, I mean just like of the heart. Right? You, you've got people who are going to try to explain what the Spirit of God is doing in some kind of physical way. They don't have space for the spiritual, for the eternal, and so they're going to try to explain it in a context of what's material and physical. And that's why some of them said when they saw the Spirit moving and speaking in tongues through the people, they said, well, they're just drunk. That's the only context they had to explain that, because the Spirit of God had not moved on them at that point. And there, there, so there are some that just that explain it away. There are some certainly that heard Peter's message, that saw what was happening, and just said, "I don't have time for this. I've got to go. My family's waiting," and they left. They ignore the message. There's some people who we'll see as we continue studying in the Book of Acts who just want to make it stop. They just they hear the message of truth, the gospel. And they just want to silence it. And like I said, we'll see that through the book of Acts in sometimes pretty severe fashion. But then there are some who are listening. And this is what gives us hope in preaching the gospel. Because there are some who are listening who the Spirit moves upon and they respond 
differently. And that's what we want to talk about and study this morning. So let's read and we'll see. And then we'll pray and ask God's uh, blessing on our time in the word. And then we'll continue. So verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Lord, it's our desire to be good students of your word this morning. We recognize that you use this in our lives. We need to be here. I need to be here to hear your word, to be challenged and encouraged by it, to be challenged and encouraged by watching my brothers and sisters respond appropriately to your word. And so may we do that for for the good of the church, for the good of our community, for the good of our families, and for the renown of the name of Jesus, who we claim as Savior. Lord, I pray that those who are listening this morning who maybe respond differently than this. One of those ways I've already described, Lord, may they not respond to that way today by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. A couple of questions that I want to ask right off the bat as I was reading and studying this, um, verse 37, now when they heard this, uh, they were cut to the heart. So I want to focus on that phrase for a little while as we start. When they heard this, what's the this? What is it that they heard? That's kind of the first question that I want to talk about. What had they heard that cut to the heart? And then also just what does it mean that they were cut to the heart? Because we had a dagger brought up here this morning. We need to understand what what context that that's in here. So I want to answer that question first. What does it what does it mean that they were cut to the heart? Here's some of the other translations. So maybe you've got one of these. Uh, they're listed in your notes. Here's some other translations. Instead of, I'm reading from the ESV that says they were, they were cut to the heart. Your translation might say they were pricked in their heart. They were pierced to the heart. Their hearts were troubled. They were acutely distressed. Or maybe some of the more loose translations say they felt very, very sorry. All those things really are appropriate. That, that's kind of what it, the phrase is getting at. In the Greek, it phys- figuratively means to pierce thoroughly. To pierce, be thinking about that word and where else you may have heard it. Now, Peter points his finger at those who are listening that day. And I believe that they felt what he was saying deeply. They felt it. I imagine they felt uncomfortable. That's a feeling, right? They felt uncomfortable. Maybe they felt a little antsy, like, ooh, we stuck around, but maybe I want to get out of here now. Um, but most of all, I think most of them, especially the ones that are described here towards the end, they just, they felt convicted, right? Pierced to the heart. They felt very, very sorry. And I think we know the feeling uh, of, of what this, what the place that they were in. 
you've done something that you know that you shouldn't have, and now somebody is talking to you about it. Maybe they're bringing it up in conversation, and your heart starts to beat a little faster. Your your hands start to get kind of sweaty, right? You start looking around to see if people are noticing these things, that sort of thing. There was a poem, The Telltale Heart. I forget who wrote it, Edgar Allan Poe or something like that, uh, that really talks and, and speaks about this conviction uh, uh, that it's just almost palpable, like you can feel it, you know you've you've done wrong. Well, I think there's some of that going on in the audience that Peter is preaching to. Jo- Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. He's having this conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus isn't getting it. And Jesus explains, and he says, we hate it when our sins come to light because we love the darkness. So Jesus says in John 3, and we would rather our sins remain in darkness so that they're not come to the light because then we have to deal with them. You guys probably have a room in your house. Maybe it's the basement, maybe it's somewhere else, but it's the catch-all I think we've got a few of those around church that we've been trying to clear out, but it's that room that you kind of forget about. It's that area where you close the door and you just keep walking by because you just don't want to deal with that right now. I see some of you laughing. I know this, you can identify. It's kind of like that in our hearts. It's that little thing that, you know, this, the spirit is moving and kind of reminding us of, maybe it's through a conversation, maybe it's through the word and we just kind of want to just close the door and keep walking by it because we just don't want to deal with that. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's inappropriate language. Maybe it's thinking about an affair. Maybe it's a lot of different things that it could be. We just want it to stay in the darkness because we like that in our inward nature. Now, for all intents and purposes, Peter is saying, this I think is just so interesting, that the Jews who literally pierced the true Messiah are now pierced in the heart by his spirit. Isn't that interesting? That same kind of thought of being pierced, their eyes now had been opened to understand they were guilty. They were responsible. They were accountable. And so the phrase cut to the heart here is appropriate. Now, this phrase is used a couple other times in the book of Acts. Uh, you can jot down this reference, Acts 5.33, Acts 7.54, 5.33 and 7.54. But the word that's used here is different or than those two. It's, they're different words. It's a different meaning. That word is different, uh, and it really doesn't mean cut to the heart and leading to repentance, like we'll see here in chapter 2. Uh, in those instances... The English just falls short of the idea of cutting, being cut to the heart. In chapter 5, verse 33, it says that the religious leaders were cut to the heart, but it didn't lead to repentance. They wanted to kill the Christians who were who were preaching. They were cut to the heart, but it resulted in something else. In chapter 7, verse 54, it says that the audience was cut to the heart, but it was Stephen preaching, and you know what they did to Stephen. They killed him. They ground their teeth in anger at him. 
stopped up their ears almost, as if they didn't want to hear. They were cut to the heart. So we see in some instances, even when we're cut to the heart, it's easier to eliminate the person speaking truth than to submit to the truth itself. And so that's the response of some people. That's still going to be the response of people in our culture today, maybe more so. They hear the truth, but it's easier to discredit the the preacher than it is to submit to the actual truth that the preacher may be sharing. Now, you don't have to kill somebody like they killed Stephen to eliminate them. You can eliminate someone speaking the truth to you by ignoring their godly advice, by avoiding them and cutting them out of your lives, by talking bad about them because they're a source of conviction of sin for you. I'd encourage you, don't do that. Don't ignore the person who shows real love for you and care for you when they say hard things to you. The book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Submit yourself to that. But there seems to be a a, a difference in what it means to be cut to the heart and how it's used. Because one indicates violence and rebellion towards God and the other indicates submission and repentance and that's what's going on here. That second one is going what's going on in Acts chapter 2 right here. Peter's hard-hitting sermon has struck a note with people, struck a chord there in the heart, and it resulted in thousands and thousands of men and women who were added to the church. But what did they do when they heard this? They responded in some way. They asked the question, what do we do? What should we do? That's still the the question that we ought to be asking. But before we go any further, let's answer that other question that I brought up at the beginning. And when it says uh, that they, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What is it that they heard that cut them to the heart? What was it that brought conviction of sin rather than a, a hardened heart towards rebellion? What was it that they heard? Well, I think we can say for sure that it was kind of a culmination of the events that preceded Peter's sermon, right? We've got tongues of fire. We've got sound as a mighty rushing wind. We've got people speaking miraculously in different languages that they shouldn't know how to speak in. And now we have Peter's explanation of all of those events in calling back to Joel. And then we've got uh, an interpretation of them for the people and a display of the gospel, Peter's saying, you did this, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's what they were hearing. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom whom you crucified. Not only did they crucify Jesus Christ, who then rose from the dead, but Peter's saying, this guy is Lord. And this is what you did. There's nothing vague or uncertain about what Peter is trying to get at in his sermon and what in these comments to his, to the people. He's saying that the one whom you hated, the one whom you crucified is now the one whom you must call on to be saved. For us, we might say the one who we ignore, 
the one who re, who we reject is the only one who can actually save us. And people constantly push him away. Now, I'm of the conviction that a person has to understand their need for a Savior before they'll ever call on the Savior. You understand what I mean when I say that? This is in your notes. To understand your need for a Savior is to understand what you're guilty of. And I think that's what Peter was trying to do in his sermon. He was trying to understand, help his audience understand that they were guilty of something. Would the prodigal son have ever returned and been restored to the father if he'd never come to his senses and said, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy of being loved by you anymore. He recognized his guilt and it drove him to repentance and restoration. Would a person ever be satisfied with the bread of life if they never realized they were hungry? You see what I mean? Will a person seek healing if they don't understand that they're sick? And see, that's what Jesus meant when he said, I didn't come for those who are well, I came for the sick. He didn't come for, to heal people who didn't believe that they needed healing. To be saved, we need to understand how sick and poor we really are. Christians and churches, we can't sugarcoat, dumb down, or try to make the gospel more politically correct. We, we just can't. Peter didn't do it. He intentionally stepped on their toes and pointed the fingers. We can't water it down. We can't do anything because the very core of the gospel is is designed to undo us. Its purpose is to reveal the darkness of our hearts and to convince us of our great need, not just to soothe us into being better people. Pastors and Christians down through the centuries have lamented the same kind of thing. We're not alone. A hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon talks about this regarding the church and Christians being fishers of men. He says, everything in this age, and again, this is a hundred years ago plus, everything in this age is shallow. So far as men's souls are concerned, deep sea fishing is almost an extinct business. The consequence is that men leap into religion like a boat and then leap out again. Unhumbled, they came to the church. Unhumbled, they remain in it. And unhumbled, they go from it. When the Jews who were listening this day, they heard that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior, verse 36, in, in verse 36, it says it pierced them to their core. It humbled them. Now, I, I don't want us to miss a critical point here. Conviction of sin came by the Spirit when the Word of God was proclaimed. Okay, in, in Acts chapter 2, conviction of sin came by the Spirit when the Word of God was proclaimed. Uh, in John chapter 16, Jesus talks about what the Holy Spirit is going to do when he comes. This is before he ever died. He was just telling his, his disciples what was going to happen. And that's the, in, the, in that conversation where Jesus says, it's actually better for you that I go. Okay, but he also says this, when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me 
a work of the Holy Spirit in a life is to convict that person of sin. Convict the hearts of men and women concerning their sins, specifically of disbelief, he says. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, when I talked about the word pierced, this is maybe the scripture that came to your mind. The Holy Spirit works in unity with the word, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. Jesus said this same thing in John 3, right? We love the darkness, but we're all going to be laid bare before the judge. Before finding forgiveness in Christ, our entire lives are spent trying to find ways to avoid dealing with or thinking about the one with whom we will have to give an account. I don't like the thought that I'm going to have to give an account, so I'll just rather live as though there is no God. I don't want to consider that I might have to stand before my creator one day, so I'll believe that all this Christianity and Bible stuff is just outdated and dumb. We will create all kinds of ridiculous false narratives to escape the conviction of sin, won't we? We will justify all kinds of terrible actions and attitudes just to avoid conviction of sin. But the word of God by the spirit of God is still the method God uses to bring conviction of sin. And if this is true, doesn't it make sense then for the enemy to do everything he can to convince Christians to try some other evangelistic method? If that's the way that God moves through conviction of sin in the spirit is by the preaching of the word, wouldn't that be what Satan attacks? Wouldn't that be what... Uh, He would want the church to get light on and start to erode in our doctrine. It's certainly more uh, palatable, more easy to swallow in our culture to soften the blow of the gospel and personal responsibility by minimizing sin, isn't it? But you know what? Minimizing sin, softening the gospel somehow, doesn't make warriors of the faith. It makes soft and easily swayed church attenders. Notice I didn't say Christians, soft and easily swayed church attenders, sugarcoating the gospel makes religious consumers, not self-sacrificing disciples. We can't do it. We can't get soft there. That's not the kind of gospel that we've been called to preach brothers and sisters, because that's really not the gospel at all. You guys have heard the phrase, the truth hurts, right? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that in your own life. If we're honest, we've been there. And when it comes to our sin, nothing could be truer, right? It hurts. Our toes have been stepped on. Our pride is has has been slashed down. We've been humbled. That's the point. That's the point. The truth heard, the truth hurt bad enough here in Acts chapter 2. That we know that the Spirit of God and the Word of God accomplished their purpose because many responded appropriately and they said, what then should we do? What do we do? And guys, I don't think that this was this poised and respectable, like, uh, you know, 
well, I, what are we supposed to do then? I, I don't think it was that at all. I think this was a desperate cry for help. Just out of the very core of their being, they're saying, oh my goodness, I'm guilty. You're right. What do I do? In your notes is a quote from early 1900s pastor C.H. Lenski. He says, these Jewish men and women felt utterly crushed. They were not only hurt, but hurt so that they could not rally a defense against the hurt. Their conscience was wounded so that they could not fend off the blow. They'd been in opposition to God in their treatment of his grace in Jesus. Denial on their part was impossible. The question they asked is, is a full admission of their guilt. By the Spirit of God, the Word of God pierced their hearts, convicted them of sin, and then prompted them to ask really the most important question that any human being could ever ask. What do we do? How can I be changed? How can I be saved from this? They're saying, we've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. We've killed him. We're his enemies. And if you look back a few verses, Peter's just reminded them, where does where do the enemies of God go? Underneath the feet of Jesus. Under his feet. They're saying, I agree with you about my condition. It was me who put Jesus on the cross. I'm accountable before God. And I'm doomed. What do I do? See, I think real conviction is seen here. Because real conviction goes further than just an outward profession. Now, it's it's right to talk about that verbally. But it goes beyond that. It affects everything. It includes your actions. It include, includes your lifestyle. Peter's preaching called for immediate application here, didn't it? Because the gospel is a call to action. It's a call to do something. Now, it's a call to believe something, to be sure, but that always spurs on action. The very first thing out of Peter's mouth in response to their question, what should we do, is to do something. To repent. Now this word, repent, I won't try to pronounce the Greek, but it means literally just to think differently. But repentance is more than just a mental exercise. Repentance is more than just a change of attitude or even a feeling of remorse. It often contains these things and is a part of that. But true repentance signifies that a person's mind is changed so completely that they consciously consciously then turn away from sin. So I want us to do something together. Everybody uh, stand up. Sorry if you were sleeping, but stand up. Now, okay, I'll, I'll stand with you. We're all facing the same direction, right? Repentance is something that changes our mind that the, the direction we're going is wrong, and we're wrong to continue on it. And then repentance is, now everybody turn around, the opposite direction. Now you're going that way. Okay, now turn around again and have a seat. That's repentance. You're heading one way, away from God in reality. And the Spirit through the Word comes and convicts you of your, your guilt before the Lord. It was me who put Christ on the cross. And now we turn around a 180 and we go the other direction. In the in military terms, it's called an about face, right? You go the other way. That's kind of what repentance is. In the book of Acts, as well as John the Baptist's sermons, as well as Jesus' sermons, as well as Paul's writings, repentance 
was always included. In fact, it's interesting that in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching before Jesus even begins his ministry. And when he's preaching, the people respond with the exact same question that they do to Peter in Acts chapter 2. John the Baptist is preaching in Luke 3, and the people hear it, and they say, what then shall we do? Same question. It's a good question. But just so we're all on the same page here, just so we don't think that John the Baptist was preaching some politically corrected version of the gospel, here's what he was saying before they asked the question. Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's the message they were hearing that John the Baptist was preaching. And then he says in verses 8 and 9, he says, Don't say to yourself that you have Abraham as your father, like that's going to make it okay. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John was not watering it down, was he? I mean, he went so far as to call them names and everything. And they heard this, and they were convicted deeply, and they asked that question, well, what do we do? What shall we do? Well, John, interestingly, he starts giving them things to do. He starts giving them examples of the fruits of the repentance that he says they ought to bear. And so the whole crowd, they say, what do we do? He says, hey, you have extra clothing and food. Go give it to people who have who don't have enough. And then tax collectors come to John and they say, well, what do we do? And John says, well, don't collect more taxes than you should. Be honest. And then soldiers come to John and they say, well, what do we do? And John says, don't use your position of authority to exhort people, extort people. He says, don't cheat them. Don't take more than you should. See, repentance is more than just something you think or say. Repentance is really something that you do. And for the Christian, repentance isn't just an event at the time of our conversion. It's part of an ongoing lifestyle, isn't it? Christians, more than anyone else, ought to be painfully aware of their constant need for God's grace in their lives. The prodigal son was convicted of sin in that pig pen. He changed his mind about his standing before his father. He changed his actions by humbling himself and running home and throwing himself at the mercy of his dad, saying, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. His changed mind changed his behavior. See the connection? Uh, Albert Barnes, who was a pastor and Bible commentator in the 1800s, says it well. He says, false repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. Let me say that again. False repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. After Peter tells them, repent, he goes on. And he says, here are some other things that will identify you as a believer. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter wasn't giving any space here for secret disciples. You understand why that's significant? For a Jew 
to say this guy really is the Messiah and I stake my life on it had maybe had some consequences. Certainly Jews today who would say that there are consequences for. Baptism then would be the mark of a public break with Judaism and identification with Jesus. And this was going to cost them something. Might cost them their jobs, might cost them their relationships at home. Peter certainly didn't aim to make it easy for him, did he? He didn't lay it all out and say, hey, if you want to live your best life now, just tweak these few things and add Jesus in and you're good to go. He doesn't say that. He says a lot of things kind of like Jesus does when Jesus says, look, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross that you expect to die on and come after me. See, the gospel doesn't make it easy, but it is easy. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is to acknowledge and submit to Jesus' authority over their lives, just like it would be for us today. That's what baptism does. It continues to be a physical picture of what the gospel of Jesus does in a person. So we talk about this when we do most baptism. We say the, the going down under the water is a visual demonstration of someone dying to their sin and their old way of life. When they come up out of the water, they're being raised to new, new life with Jesus. And they're walking a 180 from where they used to be walking, spiritually and sometimes physically. The Jews listening that day had once rejected Jesus' authority over them as Messiah. I mean, he clearly taught in the three years he taught that he was God, the Messiah, made flesh and dwelt among them. And they rejected him. They, they would refuse to submit to his authority. And so they crucified him, thinking that they'd be free of that. Well, now I don't have to hear this guy anymore. But their baptisms in his name would demonstrate that something incredible has, has happened in their lives. Life changing. The outward symbol of baptism would prove the reality of their inward repentance and faith and the fact that God had indeed forgiven their sins. Washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. In salvation, repentance isn't a separate step from saving faith. It's actually an essential aspect of saving faith. You can't receive Jesus Christ as Savior by grace through faith without a change of mind about who He is and what He did and who you are and what you've done. Like two sides of the same coin. Now, it's always important as we study Scripture to consider context because some people have used this verse to read into it and conclude that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's the term baptismal regeneration. I don't think that that's what this is teaching. And here's a few reasons why. Number one, there are far, far too many New Testament passages where salvation is said to be by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and repentance isn't a part of the equation there. I think I've got several listed in your notes, and there's many more. Second reason I would give is that the thief on the cross was given assurance of being with Jesus in paradise, and yet certainly he was never baptized, though that could be an exception rather than the rule, others might say. Another reason is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul there says that he's thankful that he only baptized a few of the, the believers in Corinth. Now that's a really strange thing for him to say if they needed to be baptized to be saved. 
Well, now Paul's withholding salvation from them is what he's saying. So I, I don't think that's what he's saying. So that's why I don't think that that proves this point. Fourth reason, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter goes on to teach that baptism is not a ceremonial act of physical purification, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It's an evidence of that, not of salvation. Jesus isn't recorded to have baptized anyone either. So it seems unusual if baptism is essential for salvation that Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, never physically baptized anyone himself. Another one would be that in verse 41, Peter just says, those who received his word were baptized. So there's another context to it, another aspect to it. They received the word. So I, I would say that we see from this text and we see from the overwhelming number of New Testament passages that baptism follows belief. And that's why we consider it believers' baptism. If you don't know Christ, we don't encourage you to be baptized. Because it's, it's not a good example of what we think baptism is an example of. Because we have to come, as we've already said this morning, we have to come to the realization that we are guilty. And if you've not been saved, you've not realized that. You haven't been humbled in that way. I think what Peter is doing is he's describing the human and then also the, as- the divine aspects of, of conversion or, or salvation here. So humanly speaking, a person must repent and believe in order to be saved. This faith is then expressed through baptism. And all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Where else can you go to get forgiveness but from God? You sin against me... You hurt me. Well, I, I can forgive you. I can tell you that you're okay with us. But what about if you sin against God? Which, in fact, Scripture teaches that every sin is an offense against God. Well, if you, if you sin against God, you can't come to me and ask for God's forgiveness. I can't grant you that. That's not the kind of system we have. I can't forgive your sins against God, but through salvation in Jesus Christ, it's forgiven. It's a promise. And then the Spirit's given, he says here, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is talking about salvation. You receive that that gift. What does the Spirit do? We've already mentioned the Spirit convicts of sin in a Christian's life. The Spirit gives comfort The Spirit gives assurance that the Spirit is that guarantee that the Lord's not done with you. He's still working. That's that's what the Spirit does. and He reconciles us back to the Father when we sin, just like we see in the story of the prodigal son. The divine aspect of what Peter is describing here involves God's sovereign activity. Look at verse 39. Peter says this wonderful promise of forgiveness and salvation in the Holy Spirit is for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Through the Spirit and through the Word, God calls people to himself. That is a phrase that you probably expect to hear in church, and it should be. But think about what we just said. Through the Spirit and through the Word, God calls people to himself. If you are honest about your past, 
and you understand the weight of your sin, isn't it incredible that God would have called you at all? Now, some of us were raised in a, a Christian home and didn't have far off the path to get. Some of us went a lot further off the path before God brought us to him. But any way you cut it, this is an incredible mercy and grace of the Lord that he would call anyone to himself. And he does it through the Spirit and through the Word. And we've already said, whosoever would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord's active work in the hearts of rebellious people gives us hope going forward in evangelism, doesn't it? If if God, if we weren't convinced that God isn't still calling people, we would be super unmotivated to go out and to share the gospel, wouldn't we? But the flip side is true. If we do believe this, if we believe that God is still calling people to salvation and faith today, even wretches like we were, doesn't that give us great joy and hope in going out with the gospel message and being sent out? It should, brothers and sisters, it should give us joy and hope in those things. God's still doing work in people's hearts. And that's why we continue to preach the unadjusted gospel because it's what God uses. That's why we still pass on the commands to repent, to believe, to be baptized, to be filled with the Spirit. God was calling then and He's still calling people now, today, to Himself. In Acts chapter 2, we see specifically He's calling Jews to Himself through the preaching of the Word. And he says that he's going to call their children. This promise is for you and your children and their children. But the call won't stop in Jerusalem. Because look at the end of verse 39. He says it's because it's all for all who are far off. Now you probably can believe that when Peter said these things, the Jews understood what he meant. On one hand, they understood that he was meaning their children who were still far off in the, in the distant time. But I think they were starting to understand, too, what Peter was getting at, and we'll get at even further as we go through Acts. That this was far off, meaning the Gentiles, people outside of the Jewish faith. Look at verse 40. Peter continues to preach and exhort them, and he warns them. He warns them. Now, we don't like warnings. I figured out how to disable it on my truck, but our minivan, if you don't plug in the seat belt, it will beep. And beep and beep. And it will drive you crazy. I think that's the point. I would, I would rather ignore the warning. I don't like the warning. I'd rather just, you know, when I get my mail and drive down my driveway, just let me be. But it beeps. I'd rather ignore it. Our culture would rather ignore those who give warnings, right? That's why we hate it when we, when, when there are people telling us what to do. Something just kind of bristles up in us. We don't like that. And yet, this is what Peter does. He warns them. What does he warn them with? He says, guys, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Other translations say, this perverse generation. Now, I don't think he's telling them to save themselves in the sense that they have the power to forgive their own sins and be okay. But I think he's saying, save yourselves in the sense, separate out from them. Live differently from the people in your generation who are doing these things. That's the point of baptism, right? The physical demonstration of saying that very thing. I'm different now. I can't do these things. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And this demonstrates it. 
That generation that he's speaking to was guilty of the death of Christ. They would have been found guilty of many more things. But if these Christians were going to truly follow, if they were to truly repent and follow Jesus, they would have to disown the lifestyle of the people that committed these crimes that they had once followed in. Peter says, come out from among them. Be distinct from them. Save yourselves from them. You guys getting the point of this, of what Peter is saying? We see the evidence of their faith and their immediate obedience in the next verses in that 3,000, about 3,000 people were added to their number, to the church. One sermon, 3,000 people, give or take. That's a big increase, brothers and sisters. That's incredible. Now, we, we don't expect that to be the case every time we preach. And yet, we continue to preach. Because the Spirit, through the Word, convicts people of sin and leads people to repentance. And faith and salvation and joy and then going and sharing the gospel themselves. I was reading this week, Charles Simeon, a 19th century pastor, he explained to one of his church members uh, what his goal is in preaching every sermon. And I, I like it. He, he, he's got three aims. He says, number one, to exalt the Savior. Number two, to humble the sinner. And number three, to promote holiness. Man, that's good. And I looked, I thought about that and I looked at what Peter shared with the Jews in Jerusalem that day. And I, I think he did this sort of thing. Now he certainly predates Charles Simeon in the 19th century, but that's what Peter did this same day. He explained the place of authority that Jesus held and he preached of his glorious resurrection. He exalted the Savior. He reminded his audience of their role in his death in their role in the rejection of the Messiah, of nailing Christ to the cross, that there was no other name, no other way that they could be saved was except through Jesus. He was humbling the hearer, the audience. And then thirdly, he encouraged submission to Jesus through repentance and baptism, which would have obvious effects in their everyday lives. We'll see this in the closing verses that we talk about next week. We'll see how it, how much it changed their hearts and how much it changed their lifestyle. He was promoting goodness and holiness. And so it, it causes us hopefully to ask these same questions, these same kinds of questions this morning. Do I exalt the Savior? Maybe before that we should ask, have I been humbled? Have I repented? You can't repent without being humbled. You will never change your mind and turn the opposite direction like we did this morning if you never admit that you need to be humbled, that you need to be saved, that you're guilty of sin that separates you from God. Have you been humbled? Do you receive the word of God, the conviction of the spirit and humility? Have you truly turned away from your sin and repented of it? And turn towards Christ. It takes more than just turning away from sin. You can, you can turn away from bad stuff, but if you never turn to Christ, you'll never be satisfied. It's both. Turning away from sin and towards the Savior. It's where real life and fulfillment comes from. Has that happened in your life? Have you identified yourself with Jesus in believer's baptism? If you haven't, 
I'd encourage you, consider it. Come and talk to me this week, today, sometime. Let's talk more about what that looks like for you. Peter's call, I think, is the same call for us today. Not only repent, but also be saved out of this crooked generation. Now, we could rightly probably point back to each generation from Peter's to ours and say, man, there's some crookedness going on there. There's some perverseness in that generation. But certainly no logical person could look at our culture today and come to any other conclusion. There's some crookedness here. Will you be saved out of it? Will you be humbled by the grace and word and spirit of God? Because you know what? God's still calling people today. Through the spirit, by the word, he's still calling to you. And he's, do, he's done that now. Would you humble yourselves? Would you come to him? Believer, would you go and live in light of who Jesus is in your life? What he's done for you? You were guilty, but he has saved you by his blood. Will you go and call others to the same? Let's pray. Lord, repentance, as we've said, is not a one-time thing. It's a regular occurrence in the life of the Christian because, Lord, us, maybe more than anyone, should be more than anyone, recognize our own wretchedness. And we've sang it today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's true, that's our condition before a relationship with Jesus. And yet, those who were once lost and separated and distant from the Lord can now be brought near by the cross and by the blood of Jesus. Humble people, humble hearts with that today, Lord. Send your spirit to do a work in those who never put their faith in you. That they would stop faking it. That they would stop resisting. They would stop thinking that if they just ignored or put it away long enough, it'll go away. It won't. It's not supposed to. And Lord, I pray that when we go and we share, that those who we share with will not try to just eliminate the person convicting them of sin. To avoid it that way. But instead, Lord, they would hear and that we would be bold in sharing. Give us that. That fire, Lord, give us that desire, not only to know your word, but to share your word and make it known, to make Jesus known in our lives, that we might display and bear fruits in keeping with repentance, that we might be called and saved out of this crooked generation, Lord, so that we might be good examples, not perfect, only Christ was, that we might point to him to tell people this is the way. This is the only way, and it's good. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder that though we are guilty, you still call guilty sinners to repentance and forgiveness and baptism and the gift of your spirit, the guarantee. Lord, I pray for those who are feeling convicted of this now like the audience was then. I pray that they would not put it aside or ignore it or explain it away, but instead they would run after this feeling, this understanding, and that they would find resolution in Jesus Christ and in salvation in him alone. In his name we pray, amen.